You're listening to Business Stories with Ryan Arcarachi, where I speak to business professionals from all walks of life. Thanks for listening, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. It's Ryan here with the Business Stories podcast. It's great to be here. I'm speaking to the amazing, the wonderful Jesse Kaiser today. Jesse is really involved in multi-unit franchising. He's the chairman of the MUFC conference coming up next year in March of 2024. He's got a lot to talk about. We have a lot to cover. Jesse, thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you've got extensive experience, Jesse, in franchising. So why don't we talk a little bit about how this all started for you and your background? Yeah. So while I was in college, I was uh, a member of a social fraternity and I was making a name for myself um, with just uh, boisterous ambitions and uh, my leadership style. And some alumni took notice of me and said, hey, we've got a technology startup. We'd like you to come work with us. Um, so I said, sure. So my junior year in college, I started working for this technology startup. This is like 1997, 98. I graduated college in 98. Uh, I stayed with that company. It was a dot-com company and I stayed with them until 2005 when I opened up my first little Caesars with my partner and my brother, uh, one of the same Charles Kaiser's, both my brother and partner. And, um, the reason I got into franchising, to be very honest with you, I was uh, the technology space really was interesting to me. It was exciting, uh, especially at like 99, 2000. It was like the wild, wild west. Anything was possible. Right. And I, I just knew that uh, the owners of that company were not interested in having an additional partner. Uh, and at some point, I wanted to own something and be a part of something bigger than just getting a check. And so we were looking at... Uh, at pizza places, we were looking, we were living in a college town, the college that uh, both Charles and I went to school in. And so, you know, there was a, there was a local pizzeria that uh, was open to selling and we were talking to them. And one of my three bosses, uh, one of the three owners of the technology company I was working for said, you know, you shouldn't do that. You should get into a franchise. And I was like, well, what's a franchise? And he's like, look, they're going to teach you how to run a business and you need that. Like you've got some great skills and talents, but you've got no experience running an actual business and these people will help you. So I said, okay. And uh, we went out and we found a a pizza franchise that we were pretty excited about. And at the last minute, they called us and said, hey, uh, we have a distribution deal that fell through. We're not going to be able to support your location in Carbondale, Illinois, if you want to open up or buy something in Indiana or anywhere else where we already have that distribution center, you could definitely do that. We'd love to have you as a franchisee. Well, at that point, I thought Carbondale, Illinois was the center of the universe and I couldn't move. So I just got on the internet and did another search for pizza franchise and saw all these obscure pizza franchises that to this day, I still have never seen one of them, but I saw little Caesars there and I was like, I thought those guys went out of business. Now keep in mind, this is like 2004, Um, they had uh, a big run in the eighties and nineties, and then they shut down a lot of their locations. And, uh, so I was like, you know what? I just need a mascot and a brand and I can make everything else happen. And so we reached out to them and on their website, they still had pizza pizza on it. They were still talking about doing delivery. Uh, and I was okay with that. I was like, Hey, whatever. Um, but they were on the cusps of creating that hot and ready $5 large pizza, which just exploded for them in the 2000s. So 
you know, timing was everything. I got in there and our first location was a hot and ready $5 large pizza location. And it just did gangbusters. Yeah. So that's, that's how I got into franchising. Wow. Wow. And this is with your, with your brother at this time, you guys are working together. Yep. He, uh, he had just graduated college himself. Uh, so I had spent three or four years, five years, maybe working for the technology startup company and just saving up every penny I could. I, I did one of those things where I went to the accounting department and said, here is a second uh, bank account I opened. I want you to put my base salary in the first account that you've always been putting everything in. And I want all the commissions to go into this other account. Mm -hmm. And I figured out how to live just on my base salary. And uh, I paid through the, uh, through the nose with my taxes. I didn't, you know, I didn't have anything to write off. I was young, uh, owned a house, but uh, there's not much to write off. The house didn't cost a lot in the first place. So just uh, over a few years, I saved up well over $100,000 and enough money to uh, live on for a year and a half. And uh, we put that money into a bank account and made an SBA loan against it. Wow. Wow. Not a lot of college kids would know how to do that. So I got to I gotta give you some credit there. Plus, working with your brother, that must have been an interesting... Did you guys ever you know, have any, any, any... Did you ever butt heads on anything? Or The, the first few years, we definitely... Uh, we definitely butted heads. Um, yeah. You know, I'm the big brother, so big brothers yeah. are always right. And little brothers don't like to be told they're wrong. Right. Uh, eventually, uh, we leveled out and we figured out what each of us were really strong at. And it happened to complement each other. So I like to talk about this concept of like a simplifier and a multiplier. And you, as an entrepreneur, you have to live in both worlds, but you get energy doing one and energy mm -hmm. comes out of you. Uh, when you do the other. And for me, I'm a multiplier. I like to make things bigger. Give me an idea. I don't have an original idea in my head uh, that I can claim. But if you give me access to a great idea, I can make it big. Mm -hmm. And my brother is a simplifier. So he likes to um, really refine things and get things down to the bare essence, right? So the best way to kind of describe that is a multiplier really focuses on the top line of the PL and a simplifier really focuses on the bottom line of the of the PL. Now, obviously, no matter who you are, you're going to have to pay attention to both of them. But mm -hmm. seeing one of those two numbers get bigger is where your energy comes from. And so for me, I just know that if that number at the top is as big as possible, the bottom's going to have to be big, right? Yeah. Uh, where he's like, hey, you know, you only have so much constraint in this one location. How do we maximize the profitability out of it? So together, once we figured that out about each other, you know, it's he's my best friend. I can't think of ever going into a business deal without him. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about multi-unit franchising and, and people, I think when they think about franchising, they have a very surface level understanding, but the multi-unit franchise model, it's slightly different. It's nuanced, right? So can you kind of break down what it means to be a multi-unit franchise owner and sort of the operations of that and what skills you need and how you should be mentally prepared to be successful in that role and what you need to do there? Sure. Well, I think anyone that gets into business, uh, particularly franchising, we all start out as a single store operator. I mean, you have to start somewhere with one location. I guess you could buy some existing locations and and that could be your first forte. But most people, they open up their first location and they live and die in that thing. And I could tell you when we had one location of Little Caesars, my brother and I were both working in it, uh, open to close. I mean, we made uh, so much money because it was he and I working in there. We were 
hardworking, we were driven, we were focused. And I mean, we hustled, right? So we just, we didn't need as many people working on the floor because we were doing two or three times the work. Um, and it showed in the, in the bottom line, which allowed us to open up our next location just 16 months later. And then 16 months after that, we opened up two more locations mm -hmm. and that's how you get into that multi-units thing. And, you know, there's a big change. Um, when you're working in your one location, you know, you just need people that are going to show up and, and listen to what you have to say. When you've got multiple locations, you're going to have to start developing and empowering people to make decisions when you're not there. And yeah. you want those decisions to reflect the decisions you would make. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I'm at a point now where I've got employees, team members that probably make better decisions on some situations than I do. And I trust I trust what they say. Now, that just comes from years of development and getting to know what their strong suits are and what their uh, weak weak spots are. But when I've got like a, a good area manager that's got some strong points, um, their judgment is pretty much what I will follow because they're they're in the trenches. They're, they know every day what the situation really is and um, their perspective is balanced and it's mature. And so their decisions are much better than mine. Uh, at first glance, I always come around to their decision or if left on my own, I would probably make the exact same decision, but they're able to make it so quick because they're just dealing with that particular situation uh, every day. Yeah. Do you feel yeah, like so you have to, Oh, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, do you feel like in a way, once you expand to that multi-unit level, you almost have to have your ego in check because you have to relinquish some of that control to your your managers or your other owners or, or whoever they may be, you feel like you have to kind of step back and does it feel weird to do that and kind of relinquish well, some of that? You know, I, I here's what I can tell you. In the restaurant business with just a few locations and if you're young and you're willing to put in a lot of hours, you can, you can run a really good business with more stick than carrot. Yeah. uh with your employees and uh that part of that is is because if i walked in and someone wasn't wearing the right uniform i just sent them home and said i'm making pizzas tonight until you figure out how to come in the proper uniform um you know like we we were sticklers you had to wear black slacks or khakis in our restaurant you can never wear jeans and so once in a while we get someone to show up in jeans and you know we just basically like can't do it go home yeah. and uh when i got into the salon business with sport clips that was such an eye opener to me because a I don't know how to I it's easy for me to make a pepperoni pizza Little Caesars yeah. did a great job training me how to do it and there's no laws saying Jesse Kaiser can't make a pizza yeah. but uh, State Board of Cosmetology says Jesse Kaiser cannot cut hair and charge someone for it it's illegal because I'm not licensed right. and I haven't got a year of training and certification for it so when I got into that business, I learned my leadership style had to completely do a 180 and I had to go from all stick and no carrot to all carrot and very little stick. Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, even if the stylist, let's say, didn't show up in the right uniform, if I send them home, that means customers aren't getting their haircut because right. I can't spend and do it. Yeah. So how do you how do you make the situation acceptable one time, but then they understand moving forward, they can never do that again. And feel like they were listened to and appreciated, but also held accountable for their actions, right? To a point where they're actually motivated to come in versus demotivated to come in. Right, right. And, that's, you, yeah. that, and that to me, I could tell you, that was the real predicus for our multi-unit development was uh, switching that leadership style from carrot to stick. 
because you're going to have to train. You're going to have to empower. You're going to have to trust. You're going to have to do so many more things. And it's not about you. It's about them. Right. And that's the big difference between multi-unit and single unit operators is you can totally be about you with a single unit. You totally can. You could be the best manager, best operator. You could be best anything. But yeah. uh, that doesn't matter a whole lot when you got three, five, 10, 15, or even 50 locations. Someone else has got to be the shining star in your organization. Right. It sounds to me like trust is a major factor in that. Um, oh, absolutely. No, I, you, I, you know, yeah. Ronald Reagan said, trust, but verify. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely need to trust, but you need to verify. And, yeah. you know, the verifying isn't that you think that they're going to do bad. I like to try to catch people doing the right thing. Yeah. And and so there's many times I'll show up at a store or make a phone call or shoot a text to a manager. I'm like, hey, I just want to let you know, you're doing a great job with those social media posts. Yeah. Um, things like that, you, you know, so you, you need to verify. Now, with like uh, Sport Clips as an example, it's such a data rich uh, concept because not only do we have uh, store level um, information, I have employee level information. I know how employee A performs compared to employee B in the same location. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's lots of opportunity for mentorship and coaching and development there because you just get so much data there. Uh, with the Little yeah. Caesars or any other restaurant, you know, you kind of have your frontline people and you have your backline people and product of the quality is going to be the backline and the customer experience is going to be the frontline for the most part. But it's really hard to know that Susie and Becky are performing at different levels if they're in the same department right. because they're working together and, and you don't get a slice out that kind of information. Yeah. Do you have any particular stories around, you know, where you've seen some success with your process and just building the trust and the relationships with, with the, with the directors or the managers, let's say in the salon situation, can you give us an example or a story of how you've developed that and how that's brought success to the brand? I, I, I will tell you that uh, the two parts that I've done very well consistently over the years is I have always tried to recruit um, the very best candidates in that market. So th what that really means is I'm looking for people to hire. I'm not just letting people come in or apply online. Sure. If they apply online, I, I definitely want to interview them. Um, because you know, the, here's the, here's the status, uh, for my particular, uh, organization. If they apply online, 76% of the time they're hired. Wow. That's high. Yeah. And uh, the data that I've seen, it's about more like 24% for the same concept. Mm -hmm. um, and so what that has to do with the, I'm going out and grabbing people and then they're hearing about us and they're applying. So the more likely uh, who I want as an ideal candidate is applying to my locations because I'm reaching out to them and educating them about why they would want to work with me mm -hmm. and my brand. Um, so that's part of it. And then the other part is uh, I've just always believed in overdeveloping. Um, so if you get enough training right away, enough good training, proper training, consistent training, um, the employee is going to feel like they are good at their job. And when you feel like you're good at your job, you tend to want to go to work. And when you yeah. feel like you're not good at your job, you look for every reason not to show up to work and you look for every reason to go find someplace else to work. So right. that, I would say those are the two things going out and aggressively finding the right people to be part of your team. And then the other part is once you get them, really develop them, get them to the point where they can run a store, even if they're not the manager. Yeah. Yeah. Part of that development too is to building the trust. And I think communication with what you want from them, 
And it's also, yeah. I think you've got to find people that are willing to admit when they're wrong or admit when there's areas they need to improve. Right. Yeah. And that's so, not always an easy conversation to have. Right. No, but you know, when I, the biggest thing I do now is I coach my district or area managers and occasionally we'll get down to the granular level of coaching a manager. Right. Um, I'm just not able to, with the number of employees, we have about 350 employees. There's just no way I can make those touches that are impactful enough on a regular basis to the actual individual employee. Yeah. So the coaching I always give, um, whenever there's a breakdown, whenever something isn't working correctly with, with a human being being involved and not a piece of equipment, yep. I always say it's one of my three, three C's. Okay. So you've got to examine it. Is it a communication issue? If it's a communication issue, that's 100% on the leader. The leader is the one that has to communicate correctly, right? Mm -hmm. The second one is, are they committed? Now that's up to the employee. Is the employee coming to work wanting to be committed and do their job? I always tell my managers, if you don't think they're committed, tell me what their attendance is. Are they showing up on time every day? If they say, yeah, I'm like, they're committed. They're just yeah. not motivated and they're not inspired, but they're committed. Yeah. And then the third one, and I used to only have those two things. It's either communication or a commitment issue, right? And if we were really doing a really good job communi uh, communicating and they weren't getting it, then we knew it was a commitment issue. And if it was a commitment issue, it was time for them to move on and find a different company to work with. But as I've matured, I've realized that there was a third C that could be in play, and that is a capability issue. So capabilities are, are you able to do the tasks that we asked you to do? And that boils down into two two branches of thought there. First thought is, do they need more training? Have they not been trained on this to give them the capability? That's, as a leader, that's your responsibility to give that to them. And then I've also learned that some people, no matter how much training and how good committed they are and how good the communication is, they're just never going to be able to get that capability. As an example, I'm never going to dunk it in the NBA. I'm five foot 10. Uh, I suck at basketball. <laughs> I'm never going to have that capability. It doesn't doesn't matter who my coach is. I'm just not going to have that. Right? right. So in that situation, does that mean they're not right for the team? Maybe, but maybe it just means they're not right for that position on the team. So yeah. that would be an example where I've got people that are highly committed, great communicators, but they struggle as a manager and we've given them lots of opportunities to build the capabilities and they're just not a manager. They're, they're an assistant manager and they're going to be the best assistant manager ever but they're not, they don't have that capability to be a strong leader. Right. Right. So let's shift gears a little bit. Talk about the multi-unit franchise conference coming up in March of 2024. It's a few months away. Well, it's going to be around the corner though, if you think about it, how quickly things go. So mm -hmm. what is the conference? Uh, who attends and why, why should people grow? Yeah. So I've, I've attended this conference for uh, 10 years, over 10 years now. And uh, it's it's probably the most uh, impactful conference I've ever attended to consistently, and there's a there's a reason for that. So you know when you're in one or when you're in one brand or maybe even two brands, like I think I was into three brands before I ever went to that conference. Um, when you get into another brand, you learn things that you can apply to your other brands that you're in. And the experience that you have with your other brands before you get into a new brand, you get to move that forward in that brand. And if you're smart about it, you're learning, you're you're bringing new capabilities to a brand and mm -hmm. hopefully it's going to make it more successful. As an example, restaurants open up much differently than salons do, right? Mm -hmm. Restaurants open up really busy. Everyone wants to eat there three times a month. 
and then it settles down to eating there once a month. Right. Right. And so, you know, in the restaurant business, you make all this money up front and it's like, you're holding on desperately, like got to keep making sure the food's great. The customer service is good because you don't want everyone to lose that excitement so quickly. Right. Salon business is a little different. No one's gone there to get a haircut before. They almost always go back to where they get their haircut. So you have to change a lot of people's habits and salons traditionally grow in a, in a upward projection, right. Where, mm -hmm. um, restaurants kind of like level out after a while. Right. When I got into the salon business, uh, I was like, well, why don't we open this like a restaurant? Let's do all this crazy grand opening. Let's hire more people than we probably need. And let's overtrain them. And let's have the same philosophy of, you know, we're going to give the best client experience and we're going to hold on to this momentum and this energy as much as we can. And when I did that, I started breaking all the grand opening records for sport clips. And it was really, I spent more and more money in marketing and I spent more money in recruitment and training. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was that simple. If I just had more employees that were doing a better job and I brought in more customers, yeah. I broke sales records, right? Yeah. And I got that from the restaurant business. So how that ties into the multi-unit, same concept. I'm going there and I'm running into people that are in brands that I'm not, and they've got different life experiences. I can tell you a good friend of mine, you know, looked at me and he's like, why, why are you? why do you keep opening up all these locations? You need to start buying locations if you really want to get, get big and you really want to have a lot of growth because you're just physically not going to be able to open up as many locations as you could purchase. Go out mm -hmm. there, find the right buys and start adding to your, your portfolio now. And I, I, I doubled the number of units I had within five years because of that philosophy where mm. I was nose and grind just opening up. And part of the reason was because I was having such grand openings that were so big, you know, my ROI on opening a new location was really good. In fact, it was better than buying, but you know, I could only do four or five of those locations a, um, a year. Mm -hmm. I could, I could pick up five locations in one transaction and have them mine in like 90 days completely. Mm -hmm. And it's a heck of a lot less work doing that. So that's an example of where I've learned those kind of things. And then, you know, I have uh, some of my best friends are competitors of mine. Now they're not in my market. They're in other markets, but they're competitor brands, right? They're not sport clip franchisees. They're either super cuts or great clips or any other brand. Um, and we're, we're sharing best practices because we're not in each other's doorsteps, you know, yeah. um, as a threat. And that's another great thing about this versus like going to your national conference. So every brand has a national conference and I think that's great too, but there's a lot of group think that happens there. And after a while, all the low hanging fruit of knowledge, you kind of grab up. Yeah. And with the multi-unit, because there's so many brands and so many people, look, if you've got five locations and you're trying to get to 15, there's someone there with 20 that can show you how to do it. If you've right. got 20 and you want to get to hundred, there's guys there with 200 that'll show you how they got to hundred. Right. So that's the other thing is it's, it's, there's always someone there willing to teach you what they did to get to the next level. Yeah. A, a better way to describe the multi-unit conference, in my opinion, no matter what brand you sign up with, they're going to give you an operations manual and an operations manual is something you're going to hand to that manager to run the operations within the four walls of that business. And that is what is on target for brand. It's what you should do and what you need to do, because why else would you be in a franchise? What no franchisor has done is been able to give you an operations manual, how you manage multiple locations. Now there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is 
everyone's going to have different strengths and weaknesses, right? Some, some owners are going to be multipliers. Some are going to be simplifiers as an example. Yeah. Um, they don't really have a good system, uh, developed because it's going to be dependent on how involved in the business you are and a whole bunch of other things. This multi-unit franchise conference is like that manual for you. You're going to go there. You're going to act, you're going to watch panelists speak about certain subjects. They have different like education tracks that you can uh, sign up for and participate in uh, the keynote speakers. And then when you're in the vendor forum area, which is where all the franchise brands are, um, you're running into all the other big multi-unit guys and girls. And you could just ask them questions like, hey, I saw you speak on this panel. Uh, I really like what you had to say. Could you please explain X, Y, Z to me more? Or how do mm -hmm. I get into this? How do I do this? Yeah. Uh, those are those are the things. So that's why I say it's like the operations manual for multi-unit use, because it's going to teach you how do you how do you develop these people? How do you structure your your manager meetings, things like that, that, um, you know, for me, I'm past that. But I wasn't four years ago. I wasn't there six years ago. And so I right. learned those over the conference. Yeah. Now, you're also involved with the IFA, too. And you talked specifically with me earlier about how there needs to be more of a focus on the franchisees and not so much on the franchisors. And I agree with you there. I think franchisees, I guess I would say in a way they get the short end of the stick because they're the ones oftentimes who need to learn the most, right? So what what's the advice you can give on the franchisee end in terms of growing and, and expanding and, and all the operational questions they have? What's some, some tidbits or advice you can give them right now? It comes to that. Well, the, the the first thing I would say is good news is the IFA is very pro franchisee and is aggressively looking for ways to get franchisees more involved in the organization. So, and that's probably been something that's been a catalyst for the last ten years or so, at least. Um, but there are like what I call three legs of IFA. There's the franchisor forum. There's the supplier network forum which is basically all the companies that provide some kind of service to the franchise or and or franchisee. Mm -hmm. And then there's the franchisee forum, which I'm a part of. And the franchisee forum has always been the weaker of the legs because there's not as many franchisees that show up to the IFA conference. Now, every year they're adding more and more people going to it. And to be honest with you, I was going to the multi-unit conference before I ever went to an IFA conference. It just, it, it rung out to me as a franchisee franchisee, this is where you need to go. I didn't even know 10 years ago that a franchisee could go to the IFA conference. So it, they're doing a much better job reaching out. The franchisee forum, because it's not been super developed, it's like an open book. And uh, there's some great people that are on the board now for, for the forum. I'm one of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really want to make this uh, about mentorship, lifestyle hacks, like how do you get it so you can travel in Europe for two weeks and not have to worry about the place burning down while you're gone? Like what things do you, what systems do you need to have in there? Um, I really would like to see it be more involved in the legislative side. The IFA does a great uh, job with their IFA summit, which is basically in September. Uh, they ask all the franchisees to come out and meet with their, um, their congressmen and senators from their states while they're in DC. And I, it's great. It's a great experience. I highly recommend it. I can't wait till my children are a little bit older. I told them that when they're seniors in high school, they get, they get to go with me and they get to yeah. meet congressmen. And it's just a great experience. I have um, through my work with the salon industry, I have been meeting with um, 
representatives and senators in their home districts. And I think that's an opportunity for the IFA, the franchisee forum moving forward is to start setting up roundtables for our local business owners to get involved with this stuff. I think, you know, when you expose local entrepreneurs to how the government really works and letting them know that your, your input is really important on how uh, policy is shaped and laws are shaped. Um, you know, I, the more you know and the more you feel like you have control over something, I think the the less anxiety someone has and uh, the more happiness they have. So these are things that I'd like to see happen with our franchisee forum at the IFA. And and uh, I'm already starting to see some of this start stuff happen. So if you're a franchisee, uh, get involved with the franchisee forum. We're looking for guys and girls that have uh, success stories. And um, I think, you know, in this group of people, and I'll say the same thing about the multi-unit, when you're around these really successful people, they're not talking about their success. They're talking about their failures and what they learned from them. And it's, it's amazing to hear, okay, well, that's a rake I don't want to step on. Thank you for explaining that so I can avoid that one. And those are so much more beneficial than having someone tell me about their private plane or their yacht. I'd rather hear about how did you, uh, how did you have 10 stores closed and then how did you get them reopened? Right. Like, how did you do that? Cause that's, that's the stuff I need to know. I want to be, a be looking out for those issues so they don't happen to me, but things like that life's going to happen. And when they do, I'd like to know that someone else has pulled out of that nosedive and this is how they did it. So I have to ask you too, like I'm on the, on the technology side of franchise development and, you know, franchise sales. And I think a lot of people really, cause technology is ever evolving and so is franchising, right? So mm-hmm. what advice do you have when it comes to technology on ter- in terms of franchise sales and development and just operations? Uh, what have you experienced with the technology and tools you've used and what's your advice when it comes to the technology side of, of all of this? Well- well, you know, uh, on the franchisee side, I've used technology to, ba- I don't have an office. <clears throat> I mean, we're recording this from my home and I'm here because it's quiet. If uh, I wasn't doing this interview, I would probably be working from a Starbucks on my laptop, just doing some work, right? Yeah. I'm only able to do that. Now I do have an office. I've got bookkeepers, I've got controllers, I've got assistants. Um, I've, we've got everything in an office uh, where I can call and they'll pick up or I can zoom them and I can see them. But, um, and that's really for my district managers and my managers. So when there's an emergency and they're like, let's say the power goes out in the strip center, they'll call them and then they'll go ahead and call the power company and see what's going on and get all that info. So the manager doesn't have to mess with that stuff and they can just manage the people and the customers while they don't have power. Right. Um, so the technology side, one thing that we use is a, an app called Trello, mm-hmm. and we use that for all of our maintenance. Um, it's set up so the manager, the area manager, and then our office, they all can communicate, take pictures, put notes, give updates. So if there's a leaky faucet, we need a plumber to come out. There's pictures so we know which one it is. We know what the description is. And then the office can just also relay back in there that uh, we called XYZ Plumber, and they're going to be out this afternoon between 3 and 5. Please let us know when they show up. So there's two-way communication. And the best part about that is that it's archived. So as an example, if I've got a washer or a dryer that keeps breaking at one of my locations, it's probably a user error that, uh, you know, we've got team members that don't know how to properly load or or 
manage the dryer. And so they're causing it to break down quicker than all of our other locations. And so, you know, we could scratch our head on that one, or we could just get in there and say, Hey, we've identified you guys are burning through twice as many dryers as everyone else. Let's talk about what we really knew. Let's get some training in there. And, yeah. you know, you would think I'm not going to, I'm not going to a pay the payroll to train every single employee, how to properly put a something in the dryer, because I'm assuming they know how to do that. But, yeah. you know, Sometimes you get three or four people that don't because they just never had to do laundry. I mean, maybe mom just did their laundry farm. And um, so, so now we can identify that and we go in there and we can, and make those changes. So that's a big one. Um, and another one that uh, I've really used in the last year is I'm using chat GPT to reconstruct all my uh, recruitment ads. And wow. um, yeah. yeah, so it's done two things for me. One, it's allowed me to have more unique ads which helps for the SEO of all your job placement ads. And then the second thing is, I, I feel like I'm pretty creative, but um, you know, if you type in uh, your normal job ad and then you say, put it in the voice of um, The Office, the TV mm -hmm. show The Office, yeah. it'll rewrite that ad as if it sounds like it's an episode of The Office with all the yeah. characters' names and what they do. Right. And you know, I think people, when they're looking for work, they want to be, they want to work someplace that at least comes across as fun. And yeah. if you go look at a job board right now, it's just nothing but here's your, we have a matching 401k. Here's your hourly rate. Here's the benefits. It's very yeah. cold and sterile. Yeah. And so I'm using AI to just be creative and I'm using that too with um, recruitment emails right? as well. Yeah. It's so funny you bring that up because I started to do something similar. Um, I started to use AI to create some content for clients and myself and tweak it and edit it. And they're getting some success from it. I don't think people realize that you can actually, and you probably already know this, Jesse, but you can create personas in your AI. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted your AI to be in the voice of whatever, George Washington or whatever, whatever right. persona or you know, salon owner, you know, whatever that AI, I guess, um, chat will come out as that persona. I don't think people realize because it's still pretty new. Obviously, we're kind of tech nerds. So we get it a little bit more probably than most people, but I don't think people realize how much you can do with this thing and how effective it can be in all areas. Yeah. You know, uh, the advice I'd give to anyone that is wanting to foray with, uh, let's say, chat GPT. So uh, Edward Deming um, was a, um, I guess he was a scientist. Uh, he was responsible for basically getting Japan back on track uh, after World War II, and that's how they became a manufacturing giant in the 70s and 80s, was uh, through Edward Deming. Deming had a thing called the Deming process, and basically he said 85% uh, of any system's outcome is determined in the first 15%. Mm -hmm. And I've always taken that as, hey, if you really train someone really well, they're going to stay longer, and you're going to get much better output out of them. So yeah. focus on that first 15% of their life with the company and getting them set up for success. And the rest of it's kind of self-managing. Right. Well, AI is very much the same way. So, you know, you're at a prompt command. The better and more time you put into putting information into the prompt command, the outcome, the output from chat GPT is better. And yeah. so I always break it down to this as an example. If you tell chat GPT to make you a sandwich with anything in the fridge, chances are it's going to be pretty disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. But 
if you list all the ingredients that make for great sandwiches yep. that you have in the fridge and then say, yep. please make me a sandwich with those ingredients or yep. any of those ingredients, yep. chances are it's going to make a really good sandwich for you. And it's right. just because you took more time to tell it what you really wanted. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating too. I've, I've used it to create, I, I believe in creating like emotional messages. I think all, a lot of content, whether you're hiring or you're, you're, I hate to say pitching, but you're, you're selling your brand. It's, you have to have developed an emotional message because buying a franchise, as you know, it's an emotional decision, recruiting people, people choosing to work for you or with you is an emotional decision because nobody's going to want to work somewhere where they're not going to be happy. Right. But at the end of the day, it comes, comes all about happiness, being happy, doing what you're doing or recruiting the right people who are in that good mindset. So, and I've used it to create emotional messages and I've seen good results from it. So it's really fascinating to see how AI, I know it's machine, but it does, it does spit out some emotional messaging, which can be useful for your brand, whether it's selling the brand or recruiting. And I think that's, that's important too. Are you seeing that too when you're in your experience with it? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, but just in general, I mean, in, in every one of my sport clips we have uh, in the back where all the employees are, I've got questions on the, on the wall, the three key questions. Can I trust you? Do you care about me? Are you committed to excellence? Right. And those are questions that I want them when they ask me this question, I want to be able to say yes to them. And I want to be able to ask them those questions and get yeses back to them. And I found out that when both the employer and the employee can say yes to those three key questions, it's a great relationship. Right. It always breaks down when someone's not able to say yes to one of those questions. Right. That's a good sort of baseline for everything, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that, that yeah. goes back to the emotional and, you know, so if you're, if your recruitment emails or ads uh, convey that you're going to be able to say yes to those three th questions, um, I think you have a, a, an emotionally um, gratifying recruitment ad. Yeah. This has been really good, Jesse. I think it's been a really good conversation and there's been a lot of good tidbits coming out of this. I want to ask you to, as we wrap it up, can you give me kind of one heartfelt story something that's moved you in franchising personally through your journey that you could uh, give, give our listeners something to take away from? Well, you know, as far as emotions, um, I'd, ha I'd have to circle back on that one, but I could tell you one that uh, really was a, a pivotal moment for me in franchising was um, I was not going to qualify for the first round of PPP loans. Uh, because of the size and nature of my company. And um, the IFA uh, got in there and worked with the the congressmen and women and made it so franchisees would be able to participate in PPP. And that allowed our company to stay afloat. So yeah, I, I, I mean, it's three years in the hindsight, but I'm still eternally grateful that uh, there was an organization that looked out not just for the franchisor, but the franchisees yeah. and really made it so that, you know, guys and girls like me in, in the, on the ground, owning these actual businesses were able to participate and get a little relief. And it, it made, it made the world a difference. It kept us afloat and, uh, I'm forever grateful for that. Wow. That's great. Well, thank you, Jesse. This has been fantastic. I think if anybody's listening, they should go to the MUFC. I believe I will be there because it's in my hometown. I'm in Las Vegas, so it's right in my backyard. Um, and if you're going to attend, go see Jesse. 
talk to the people there, learn everything you can. And if people have more questions or they want to get in touch with you, Jesse, what's the best way to reach you right now? You know, email probably is the best way. And I'll spell out my email. It's jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at Kaiser, which is my last name, K-E-Y-S-E-R, enterprises, that's plural, dot com. Um, uh, and also, if you just look me up on LinkedIn and, and do a connection request, I'm happy to chat with you on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm checking that pretty regularly these last few years. Great. Well, thank you, Jesse. Have a great rest of your week and let's keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your time. Hey, this is Ryan. Are you in the market for a customer relationship management system for your business? Well, before you drop a dime, pick up my book, Customer Relationship Management Exposed, now available on Amazon. Just search Customer Relationship Management Exposed and my name, R-Y-A-N-A-R-C-O-R-A-C-I. This is your definitive guide to saving money before purchasing a CRM, so pick it up today.